This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for August 13th, 2018. The reactions to the case of Sarah Jong, newly appointed to the editorial board of the New York Times and newly found to have made many aggressive and racially charged statements on Twitter, exploded across the news last week. In this show, I tried to take a cool look at the facts. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes. Although I'm very much on the left and I disagree with conservatives on most things, I agree with them on this. This is blatant uh, double standards on the part of the social justice left. That's coming up shortly, and this is turning into a political correctness bumper edition, I'm aware. Sorry about that. But I wanted to comment a bit on the controversy that blew up in the UK about Boris Johnson's comment about Muslim women who wear burqas. Boris Johnson, in case you don't know, is the British Conservative politician who resigned recently in protest that British Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit plan wasn't strong enough. Now, Everything about Johnson's behaviour in regards to Brexit suggests that he has little or no principled beliefs on the matter and that he's just using it as leverage to try to get himself into her job, but that's a different story. Johnson started a controversy when he said that women who wear the niqab or burqa look like bank robbers or letterboxes. Let's be clear about the terms here. By far the majority of Muslim women who wear headscarves wear a hijab or something similar, which basically covers the hair and neck. Some go further and wear a niqab, which includes a veil which exposes only their eyes, and the most extreme, notably in Afghanistan under the Taliban, wear a burqa, which even covers the eyes with a semi-transparent gauze. It's worth noting that women covering their hair is by no means confined to the Islamic world. It's common in more traditional areas like in Greece or Armenia, both Christian, for women to wear scarves in public. It's pretty common in Russia too, particularly in more rural areas, and it would have been quite normal right across Western Europe up to about 50 years ago, not to mention among Amish and other religious groups in the United States. I have a couple of views about this. Firstly, for people in the West, I don't like the idea of people wearing special clothes to mark out the fact that they are of a minority religion. I don't confine that to Muslim women. The right-wing commentator Ben Shapiro has defended the right of Muslim women to wear the hijab, pointing out that he wears a kippah, the Jewish skullcap. I disagree with Muslim women wearing the hijab in public. I disagree with Ben Shapiro or other Jewish men wearing a kippah in public because I think it's bad for the cohesion of society to have some people marking themselves out as not normal with the rest of us by corollary being normal. To be clear, I think that people have the right to wear a kippah or a hijab. I don't want any laws to prevent them from wearing them. They have a perfect right to make that choice but I have the right to disagree with that choice. But I think that the niqab and the burqa are in a different class. 
they both create a barrier between people. And it's not a symbolic barrier like a kippah or a hijab. It's a literal physical barrier that comes between members of society. Facial expressions are an incredibly important component of communication, whether it's between a parent and their kid's teacher, neighbours saying hello as they take out the garbage, or a barista and somebody ordering a coffee. In a society where trust and community are in short supply, blocking the communication of facial expressions has the potential to exacerbate tensions in a way that we just don't need. That said, I don't think we should ban the niqab or the burqa. I disagree with them, but I disagree with a lot of things. And I don't expect my personal standards to be enforced on everybody else by the government. I can see a case for prohibiting face coverings that could amount to a disguise in some high security zones, but apart from that, I believe in individual rights. So you might think that I agree with Boris Johnson. Well, no. I don't believe that Boris Johnson has been struck by a sudden concern for security. Boris Johnson is a cynical and manipulative politician. He quit Theresa May's cabinet because he thinks it's a good manoeuvre to eventually get her job. He wants to keep himself in the news and he wants to appeal to a certain wing of the Conservative Party, so he made the statement knowing the attention that it would gather him. If you think that he cares about this issue, don't kid yourself. You can be sure that this isn't coming from a concern for security either. There was no talk about the danger of wearing a motorcycle helmet or a Halloween mask in secure areas. Johnson made this statement because, given the constituency that he's appealing to, bashing Muslims is a popular thing to do. If he were sincere, he could have made jokes about how silly Orthodox Jews look with idiosyncratic hairstyles and black clothes. But going after Jews doesn't fit his purpose, at least not yet. So when I hear about an argument over whether Johnson is right that Muslim women's face coverings have no place in the Western world, or that Johnson is wrong and just trying to stir up sectarian bigotry for his own political ends, I don't see a contradiction there. I think they're both true. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Iona Italia. She is an author, an editor, a translator and a teacher of Argentine tango. And she's also involved with Ario magazine, where I read a very interesting piece. Um, Iona, for anybody who's been living under a rock for the last week and didn't hear the story of Sarah Jong, the new staff member of the New York Times, can you just give a very brief history of what that, that uh, controversy that has blown up? Um, so what happened is that uh, some people have unearthed some old tweets of Sarah Jong's Mm -hmm. uh, spanning a period of, I think, four to five years, uh, where one of the repeated themes is um, white bashing, mm -hmm. um, I would say. So it's a number of tweets in which she expresses her hatred of uh, white people. This has caused a, a storm of controversy. And a number of people on the social justice left have come out in uh, support 
not just of her, but of the sentiments expressed in the tweets. Yeah, we, we should say we should say Sarah Jong is um, uh, from a Korean background. I don't know if she was born in Korea. I think she was born in the US, but uh, from Korean heritage. She's certainly a left wing writer. Is it fair to say what she was that what she was writing was white hatred? Was hatred of white people? Um, you know, I don't know what was going on in her own mind. Um, there are various possible explanations. So she may harbor some deep-seated hatred of white people. I have no idea. She may also be just uh, virtue signaling to the social justice left, mm-hmm. so showing that she's a good member of the left, or it may be a mixture of both. Do you, do you think that they were sincere? I actually, you know, um, personally, I do think so. Um, but... Um, I really have no way of knowing, and I feel as though that's not the important point. The important point is not the tweets themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the important point is that many on the social justice left are tying themselves in the most fascinating mental knots. Um, a great deal of cognitive contortionism is going on in order to justify um, the sentiment, i.e., in order to justify the idea that it is um, okay to hate uh, white people as a group um, and to be racist against white people as a group. In fact, many of them are trying to redefine racism to suggest that it's not racism but something not as bad as racism if your racism is directed towards uh, white people. So what I'm more concerned with is the response to the tweets rather than Jong herself, who is just one person. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that struck me on this uh, is that it's probably a lot more elegant, eloquent and it's probably got more intelligence put behind the argument. But the core of some of these arguments aren't that different from some of the things that you hear uh, Donald Trump saying. So, for example, there is a, a trend in some arguments in favour of Sarah Jong saying that this isn't racist and it's right to be racist anyway. It's kind of like a, a denial and a justification in the same breath. That exactly. Really, that, that really indicates that, that people aren't thinking clearly, doesn't it? Uh, yes, they are certainly not thinking clearly. Um, I, yes, I mean, I think that the question of the degree to which it's performative is really, um, I think that's kind of a moot point. So a lot of people on the right and the alt-right in mm-hmm. particular also say, well, you know, posting oven memes um, or tweeting oven memes at, at Jewish people is performative it's just joking it's just trolling uh it's not um it's not to be taken seriously and i feel as though if the kinds of things that you are saying are exactly the same kinds of things that a racist would say uh someone sincerely racist would say and you're using the same context the same manner the same tone then i think that you can reasonably expect to be taken at your word and even if you are just trolling, this is a kind of trolling that is very destructive. Mm-hmm. You're providing cover. Even if you are not a racist, let's uh, give her the benefit of the doubt on that or give all of these people the benefit of the doubt. You're providing cover to real racists and bigots. And you are basically uh, debasing discourse. You're encouraging people to hate. 
And there's an element of winking, not I'm not specifically referring to um, Sarah Jong here, but in perhaps a lot of the right-wing trolling that you get, and this started out on places like 4chan, but it has really moved much more mainstream in the past couple of years. And you mentioned oven memes of, of referring to the Holocaust and people saying, oh yeah, but it's only a joke. But there's sort of a winking going on there, isn't there, that this could be serious anti-Semitic racism. This could be a, a, a sick joke, but it really it's probably something in between the two. Right. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, I'm a staunch defender of free speech, so I think you should be allowed to post whatever means you wish, write whatever you wish, wherever you are in the political spectrum. And I also think Twitter should be a completely free speech zone. So I, in fact, oppose uh banning people from Twitter, except for very specific things like direct incitement to violence, mm -hmm. which would have to be related to doxing, so revealing the person's address or something of that kind. Um, but in general, just expressing opinions, however noxious, I think should be permitted. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be pushing back strongly against those opinions. In fact, I think that if you are a believer in free speech, as I am, uh, free speech comes with trade-offs, um, and one of the trade-offs is that people will say terrible things, and it is your duty, in fact, to counter them, to stand up against them, not to kind of make excuses. What, what I want to do then, Iona, is I want to just look at a couple of points that you made and just see if I can agree with them or see if, if they stand up. And one of the things that you mentioned is a meme, not in the in the uh, visual sense, but a theme that is repeated quite often, which is saying that racism is power plus prejudice. Where did that come from? And is that linguistically true? So I think that's come from, um, I'm not sure who I'm not actually sure who first uh, said that, but that has come from um, academe, from critical race theory. Mm -hmm. So first of all, linguistically, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, we obviously have a phenomenon which is being prejudiced against people on the basis of their real or perceived race. That's That's something that we talk about all the time, and therefore... That is a phenomenon that would exist even if English didn't have a precise term for it. Mm -hmm. But luckily, we do have a precise term for it. Um, so it's not it. It doesn't seem to me to be plausible to believe that we have a precise term for something that we talk about every day and has morphed into something else. And uh, that that doesn't seem credible to me. And I think that most people are not using the term in that way. But even if we called it the loop to do instead of racism, it would still be the same thing. So playing kind of language games with the terminology is not helpful. I think it's also very unhelpful because there are at least two um, strands uh, of racism, two types of racism, or we could call it bigotry more generally, mm -hmm. uh, i.e. prejudice against a group on the basis of some ascribed characteristic or innate characteristic. So, for example, bigotry against Muslims um, or homophobia. Um, those are all species of bigotry that aren't race-based. But in all cases, I think there are two sort of strands of thought. 
that are possible and they can occur in combination. And one is that you despise the outgroup for being um, lazy, dirty, good for nothings, whatever. You know, this is the kind of um, uh, racism that people used to have against, I'm sorry, but the Irish. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, uh, I hear that a lot about African-Americans. So that's one strand of of, um, bigotry and racism. And the other strand, which is equally despicable, is um, a racism that is based on paranoia and fear that the other group has all, is monopolizing power. And therefore, you hate even members of the group who aren't necessarily in themselves powerful because you see them as representatives of this powerful cabal of people in control of things. And um, that's very a very common form of anti-Semitism. Jews control the media, etc. And the alt-right actually also use this imagery about Muslims. While the social justice left might point out that Muslims are a minority within uh, the US, for example, um, the alt-right will counter that by saying, but they are a huge um, group worldwide. So they're a powerful worldwide global threat. So that is this kind of paranoia version of racism. And if we see racism as only possible um, towards groups that you despise and think are kind of somehow lower, then we ignore this other powerful motive for racism and we ignore these other types of racism and bigotry, most notably anti-Semitism, which has you know, the longest and, and most awful history of almost any type of bigotry. Let, let me ask you then, let me ask you then, Iona, because if you look at the dictionary definition of racism, it's what pretty much most people have have accepted it to be in in the history of the English language and a language is a speech convention a lang- a word means something because we all agree that it means that thing and i don't think it's reasonable for uh, even if it's uh, an academic uh, in race relations it's not reasonable for them to come along and say that the word that i use means something to what different to what i think it means uh, in the oxford dictionary it says racism is prejudice discrimination or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. There are other definitions there as well. But it is true, isn't it, that you can't just flip something and say that this is the reverse equivalent. You'll no doubt be familiar. There was a phrase uh, amongst uh, activists in the US, perhaps in the 1960s and 70s, black power. Mm-hmm. And you could take out black and switch it to white and say white power. Those two things mean things that are entirely different and not equivalent or opposites of each other. They're they're entirely distinct concepts, aren't they? I really feel this is not such an interesting uh, uh, question as it seems, um, because we have to examine what movements are actually about, mm-hmm. uh, what people actually stand for, rather than just looking at what they call themselves. Mm-hmm. So I don't, for example, feel that the white power movement is in any way analogous to black power, just as I don't feel that the social justice left um, is really uh, about justice anymore. And I don't believe that the Democratic Republic of Korea is democratic Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can just um, disregard a kind of analysis of slogans 
um, and look to the actual policies themselves. But I think it's interesting also that Martin Luther King actually said that he found the term black power, the phrase black power, um, inappropriate because it suggested that all black people were powerless and all white people were in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And he suggested um, poor people's power, or I think something similar as an alternative, because he felt that black people and poor whites should unite in their fight against social injustices. Um, One thing I'll put to you then, and I'm looking at a piece on uh, Vox.com today by Zach uh, Beauchamp, and he's saying to anyone who's even passingly familiar with the way the social justice left talks, this is clearly untrue. Zach Beauchamp is saying that white people is shorthand for naive privileged white people and that it's not uh, referring to all white people. Do you think that's a credible line? No, not at all. Um, So I don't say um, Muslims are terrorists and then then specify by Muslims it's shorthand for. um, This kind of shorthand is precisely what racism and bigotry are about. Um, If you are characterizing all members of a group by those members of the group who you dislike, then that, that, is, that is precisely the definition of racism. That's a shorthand that we shouldn't have. What, what do you think then, and I've got another um, tweet here from a guy called Trevor Tim. He is co-founder uh, of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, and uh, he's also involved with the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. And the tweet is, and I'll give it to you uh, verbatim, man, this Sarah John controversy, he's got controversy in quotes, is ridiculous. What has made her such an authentic writer over the years is is the funny, smart and original way she's used Twitter. To use her clearly tongue-in-cheek tweets to now stifle her voice is so depressing. Do you buy that? Whether the tweets are tongue-in-cheek or trolling or, or not are really, um, uh, is really irrelevant. Um, because this isn't is no longer about Sarah Jong's tweets, I would say this is about the response to those tweets from the social justice left, which mm-hmm. has not been tongue in cheek or joking. You know, I'm absolutely fine with jokes uh, about anybody, and I really enjoy. I joke about Scottish people, I joke about Indian people, um, I joke about Parsis, and I'm absolutely fine with um, jokes about crackers and honkies and people putting mayonnaise on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not what the social justice left is doing in response to the tweets. What they are doing now is defending bigotry and racism against white people, all white people as a group. So really deflecting it back to, oh, it's just one young woman's Twitter feed is extremely disingenuous. This is a, is, has become a wider cultural issue. And also I would say that it's not about silencing her. So I'm, I'm actually, um, I don't think the, the New York Times should have hired her because I feel that her tweets reveal that she has a very strong bias um, because they should be speaking for everyone in the U.S., not just for a specific group. The New York Times, having hired her, having made that decision, their decision to hire or fire people should be based on their own criteria, uh, their own values, and not on how upset or otherwise people seem to be on Twitter. Um, so I feel that they should not be swayed by 
people's opinions on Twitter. And I'm actually not in favour of her firing. Is there a case to be made then, Iona, that either the New York Times in the case of Sarah Jong or Disney in the case of Roseanne Barr, they're private companies, they're enormous private companies with uh, large uh, shareholdings and so forth, but nevertheless, they're not governmental organisations and they can hire and fire whoever the hell they like and face the commercial consequences. Uh, Absolutely. I do agree with that. Um, But you, you would have to agree, though, that it does seem that corporate America is, in in trying to be politically correct, has treated Roseanne Barr way more harshly than Sarah Jong. I think this comparison is not useful at all. Um, You know, I don't think it's about Sarah Jong, nor is it about Roseanne Barr. Um, I feel that these are all not on your part, because I know you're um, playing devil's advocate here. Okay. But on the part of people raising these issues, I feel these are deflections. The, the main issue is, is it okay um, to be bigoted and racist towards white people as a group? Um, given that, as a group, statistically speaking, uh, white people have, uh, are more likely to be affluent. I don't even know if this is true in the case of Korean Americans. But supposing that it is true that they are more likely to be affluent, they're more likely to have good careers, they're more likely to be well-educated, and also given the U.S.'s very ugly history of uh, treatment of minorities, particularly African Americans, um, is it therefore okay to hate white people as a group? And to that, I would say no. And that is completely independent of decisions to do with Roseanne Barr or to do with Sarah Jong even. It's completely independent of that. That is the that is the point that we are arguing about. I, I presume you would extend whether it's okay to hit white people to all races. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not okay. Also, you mentioned the dangers of tribalism. And in this, in your article, you're clearly referring to the tribalism of race. But isn't it possible now that ideology is more of a tribalism uh, in the West, at least, and that people who identify themselves as conservatives are seeing, and perhaps it's a very self-regarding thing to do, but they're seeing themselves as being discriminated against when uh, someone who offends, as they see it, from their camp is being treated much more harshly than uh, the opposition in a similar situation. Um, And in this case, although... Although I'm very much on the left and I disagree with conservatives on most things, I agree with them on this. This is blatant uh, double standards on the part of the social justice left. Um, Conservatives also, of course, um, many conservative figures also have double standards towards treatment, freedom of speech, etc. Partisanship is rife on both sides. Um, but I'm more interested in condemning it on my own side because I feel everyone should clean up their own house first. By, by which you mean the left? By which I mean the left, yeah. Um, then I'll move just to my final question because I knew, know that you're involved in a new online magazine. Tell me exactly what that is and what it's for. Okay, the magazine is called uh, Ario, A-R-E-O. Mm-hmm. And it's a digital magazine founded about a year ago by Malhar Mali. And Helen Pluckrose uh, has taken over as editor-in-chief, and I'm currently the sub-editor. 
Um, the magazine is designed to provide a platform for sane, reasonable, calm, moderate voices from both sides of the political aisle, from left and right. And we feel that there is a real need for social, political and cultural commentary, which is not inflammatory, partisan, accusatory, which steelmans the arguments of the opposition mm-hmm. and which puts forth a calm case. Iona Italia, uh, author, editor, translator, uh, dance teacher, and also uh, the author of at least one book. I will put a link to all of that in the show notes of this uh, podcast. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter and follow Iona Italia at Iona Italia and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. And I have a Patreon account, so if you would like to support the podcast with a small donation, I'd really appreciate that. All the details are on the website. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 